Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Western philosophy is obsessed with, dare I say, oppressed by the illusion of choice. Let's paraphrase a helpful example from Lou Elizondo to illustrate this point. Imagine you were given the power to build anything you want using your chosen materials. Your goal is to build something that can withstand the test of time, at least as long as the planet's lifespan. Remember that the oldest structures we know of have only been around a few thousand years and are already fast decaying. In comparison, the Earth is estimated to be older than 4.5 billion years. What could you possibly make using what materials that would not be overtaken by natural processes which erode, erase, compress, and melt everything over and over again for millions, nay, billions of years. Natural processes will eventually destroy even the junk we put in orbit. Do we know what was ever built on this planet, save the few stone scraps we call historical ruins? In a few million years, will anyone even know that we were here? We imagine that we have a choice. To build. To prosper. To thrive. To grow. To live life as we see fit. However, life comes down not to choice, but to Simeon, the one who hears and bears witness to the teaching, and Anna, the one filled with the grace of the teaching. Unlike the temple of stone or anything made by human hands, this teaching, the law of the Lord, given to safeguard human life, cannot be destroyed by natural processes. The seed of this teaching, like the seed of life itself, continues from generation to generation. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, verses 39 to 40. This week's episode is dedicated to the loving memory of Father Daniel Rentel and to all those who perished in the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. May their memory be eternal. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 468 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We began this section of the Gospel of Luke within chapter 2 in conflict 
with the command of Caesar Augustus, who, as we know by now, is fully committed to dividing the body politic of Jesus Christ, the polity of the Roman Empire, into different cities in order to exercise his will, his control, his power. And if you recall, it was the shepherds of Israel who thumbed their nose at Caesar's authority in order to ensure that the gospel message was carried forward so that the Torah to the Gentiles could be carried forward through the gospel story contained within Luke. I mean, Luke is pregnant with the Torah. That's what the gospel is. It is a story pregnant with an instruction to be carried forward. And that is expressed in the story of Simeon. It is expressed in the story of Anna, who is the graceful prophetess. That is the meaning of her name. She is a woman who was ransomed from captivity by the appearance of Jesus Christ, who is the carrier of this instruction. And we have heard over and over again something, Rich, you and I were talking about before today's program. We've just heard this constant repetition of the law of the Lord, the law of the Lord. So we're not imagining that what's really happening here in Luke is that it's not just Anna being set free from captivity in Jerusalem. Come to think of it. It's the Torah being set free from captivity. Because now through the appearance of Jesus Christ, this instruction that Anna herself has been keeping vigil and proclaiming to anyone who will listen is now going to be finally set free and on the move. It's a powerful story. We are going to see the law of the Lord, this graceful teaching, finally out from under the boot, not only of Caesar Augustus, but of the temple infrastructure. And when you think about this in terms of where we began with the priest having to be silenced in the temple before he could be allowed to speak, not his words, but the words of God's instruction, it all comes full circle here. This trip that they've taken, it's going to be a loop. They started off in Nazareth, and they came down to Bethlehem because of the law of Caesar, because they were commanded to by Caesar. But then they travel to Jerusalem so that they can fulfill the law of the Lord, the law of Moses. And we heard this phrase already multiple times, where they fulfilled the commandment. So they fulfilled the commandment of Caesar, then they went to Jerusalem, fulfilled the commandment of God, and then are going back. But the way the angels have colluded to begin with the pregnancy of Elizabeth and then the pregnancy of Mary and the silence of Zacharias and then the naming of Jesus's cousin, John, which is the Lord is gracious, Johanna, as opposed to Anna, who is Hannah. So you have that grace already twice in these names in addition to the Simeon, who is the one who hears or is the hearing. And the temple is full of this theme where we have Zacharias, the priest, who the Lord remembers. And then we have his son, Johanna, the Lord is gracious. And lo and behold, there's another prophetess named Hannah in the temple along with the hearing. All these come together as Jesus, the salvation, is brought through by his parents back to Nazareth 
And in the next scene, he will be old enough to be moving on his own two feet. But this conclusion of this first section, as you said, Father, shows this tension between the law of Caesar and the law of the Lord and how the temple falls in this kind of ambiguous space. Because on the one hand, it's supposed to be pregnant, as you said, with the law of the Lord. It's there so that people can be obedient to the law of the Lord, but it's in the hands of Caesar and it easily corrupts those who would be servants of the Lord because there's so much to be gained by colluding with Rome and with Caesar, even if you are part of this temple. The gospel itself can be pregnant. The Virgin Mary can be pregnant. The prophetess Anna, in principle, could be pregnant. All of the women in Luke chapter 2 can be made pregnant, but a temple of stone made by the hand of man cannot be pregnant. That is the relevant and germane point here in the Gospel of Luke. That is why Anna is stuck. That is why her name, which is Grace and Grace-filled, is the hope in the story through Jesus Christ. Because she is not a building made of stone. She is a woman made of flesh and blood who has a womb, and she is a preacher. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. So what is striking here is that once they are under the aegis of the Torah, the nomos of God, once they're under his authority, they are deorganized according to Caesar's design, no longer organized according to identity or preference in food or as Diocletian will later decide and draw lines on a map into dioceses. None of that nonsense. They are just back where they were found. I want to stress that point. They're going back to that place where they were found, into the mixed bag alongside whomever they were found in the womb of the earth. That's the function of Nazareth here. It's not about going back to your Palestine or your Israel or your Ukraine or your Russia. It's not about national identity. It's about going to the place where you were found. And if there are people who are different than you there, doesn't matter because that's where you were found. I'll never forget years ago, Father Paul was invited to give a talk on Palestine at a local university. And because of his background in the Middle East and the fact that he has relatives who were very important in the Palestinian struggle, people expected him to talk politics. And he said very simply, after explaining the prophets, not explaining politics and political ideology, but explaining scripture, in answering one of the questions, he said, look, at the time, I live in Connecticut. I'm a Palestinian who grew up in Lebanon. If someone moves in who's a different color than me or who eats different food than me, 
but who speaks a different language than me? Into my block, what do you want me to do? Hang myself because I'm the only Palestinian on the block? This is the mentality of scripture. Identity is not germane. Identity is a concoction of imperialism. Because in the palm of God's hand, we are where we are found with whom we are found. And when we are under the law of the Lord, in verse 39, we find ourselves back where we were found. I I can't stress that enough, Rich. It's against the imposition of imperialism, the imposition of identity, the imposition of boundary and city, but it's not replacing it with the identity of the Nazarenes. No way. It's about locality in the palm of God's hands. When we started, Father, you and I were having this discussion about what is translated as performed all things according to the law of the Lord, when really it seems like the translation should be and has been earlier fulfilled or completed. And identity is when I say, who do you think you are? And you get to answer off the top of your head your own reference. So far, this family has only functioned according to obedience. Now, they're obedient to Caesar, and that's how they ended up in Bethlehem. And then they fulfilled the law of the Lord, and that's how they were obedient to the Lord. But everything is in function of obedience. And when it comes to identity, it's who do you think you are? Well, I feel more conservative. I feel more liberal. I mean, someone sent me a video about a Lebanese activist and, oh, look, they're a Muslim Lebanese activist. And so we should listen to them. And they were saying a bunch of nasty things I I couldn't agree with. And I'm like, "I, I don't know, but what they're obedient to appears to be some nasty ideology I can't sign on to as someone who is obedient to scripture. So they don't have anything to show me. I can listen. Their reference point is incorrect as far as I'm concerned, because my reference point is the scripture. How many times in this chapter have we read the law of the Lord, the law of Moses, as the reference point for what Mary and Joseph are doing? For Luke in chapter 2, it's about this reference point. What is Luke trying to say to Theophilus? So far, it's this reference point. When the angel spoke to Zechariah, just to be sure that the reference point was correct, Zechariah is not allowed to speak unless the reference point is Scripture. So that makes it very easy. The angel can just make you not talk. But here they functioned according to this. And they went back to Nazareth. And thank you for bringing that up too, Father, because it reminds me that you know this is part of the Northern Kingdom at this time. It was known for being impure because of the Gentile influence. The Assyrians brought in foreigners to live there. When they deported the Israelites from that area, they brought in foreigners. And so the mixing was considered to have made the people there impure, so they weren't true Jews. But these people who were commanded to go down to Jerusalem went down to Jerusalem after they were sent by Caesar to go to Bethlehem. Those in the north would be Samaritans who were persona non grata by terms of the Jews. 
they did not go to Jerusalem to sacrifice. But these people, even though they lived in the northern kingdom, they were obedient to the law of the Lord and went to Jerusalem to sacrifice after having been sent to Bethlehem by Caesar. I mean, maybe it was more convenient for the family. We're going to have to go to Jerusalem anyway to sacrifice on behalf of their child who was born. And they were already in the neighborhood. They were in Bethlehem. It's not so far away compared to Nazareth. So it all works together providentially in the way that Luke has written the story. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Two interesting points that jump out immediately. The increase in wisdom pertains to the law of the Lord. This is not up for discussion. And unfortunately, it needs to be insisted upon in 2023 because everyone will assume that it's coming from somewhere else through Jesus's personal experience or his meditation or whatever, because everybody hears the text with their own meta filter. Just put your filter away. You may only hear what you hear. You may only hear the sounds that are enunciated when someone enunciates the symbols inscribed by the hand of the author. It is a text. And we have heard over and over again that we are talking about the law of Moses, the law of the Lord, the light to the nations which if you have any familiarity with scripture, you know that when Paul uses that terminology, he's talking about the Torah, the law of the Lord, the light to the nations, for which Simeon died, of which Anna the prophetess speaks, for which she pines in captivity. It is through her that this grace operates and this grace now falls upon Jesus Christ, and Anna bears witness to it. There is a connection between Anna's witness and the grace that has now fallen upon Jesus Christ. It's such a beautiful story. On the one hand, Anna receives grace through Jesus Christ. On the other hand, it is through her preaching and her faithfulness that the grace of God is now upon him. Now, you can say what you want, but he's a child, and she's an elderly woman who is preaching. She's a mother. So these things are important to take note of as you hear this story. When we talk about Jesus growing and becoming strong, he was filling with wisdom. The way that the grammar works out is that he was growing and he was becoming strong, and strangely, in the King James, it says, became strong in spirit. Spirit's not in the Greek, so I'm not sure exactly what they wanted to say with that. But anyway, we'll jump over that since it's not in the Greek. Was filling with wisdom. So as those actions were happening, he was being filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. So we have, again, this grace. And like you said, this is another reference to the Hannah, which is Anna's name and John's name. A third time that we have this important concept already when we take in consideration the names. I want people to take seriously these names because when you do 
And look how seriously Zecharias took the name. Everyone said, name him Zecharias after yourself. And he said, no, this is the name. So Zecharias insisted because he was commanded. And why was he commanded? Because this name is significant, because the Lord, in his offering this grace, was brought by John, is brought by Anna as she continues to teach this message that she heard from Simeon and that she heard in the temple. And now we have Jesus growing in this same Hades. And so grace of God upon him reflects the wisdom, because the only wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord, which is obedience to the Lord. And since I've been teaching Hebrews in another Bible study, I keep reading over and over again about Jesus's glory coming from his obedience. And here we have Mary and Joseph being obedient, and Simeon being obedient, and Anna being obedient. I mean, I hope everyone's able to see this by now. (laughs) Even though we're in chapter 2, this is the main thing. This is the main thing, the grace and the obedience. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.